You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And if you have your copy of God's Word, will you take that and turn with me to Psalm 32? Psalm 32. Uh, this morning is a communion Sunday as well, so I hope you remembered to get those communion elements on your way into worship. If not, you can sneak back there and grab those now. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find Bibles, stacks of them, on those tables in the back of the room. Take one now, use it to follow along with us today. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. If you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people, so listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This Advent season, we are focusing on forgiveness, why we need it, where to find it, resting in it, and granting it to others. Thus far, we have covered the why we need it and the where to find it parts. So in technical terms, we have talked about theological anthropology and we've talked about Christology. We've learned that humans are sinful by condition and action and we've learned that salvation is found in Christ alone. Both sin and salvation can be summed up in one word, and that word is substitution. Substitution. The late Anglican pastor John Stott, in his masterful book called The Cross of Christ, he puts it this way, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, us putting ourselves in God's place, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Substitution. Substitution is necessary for our salvation. Jesus came to earth 
moved into the neighborhood, as it were, stepped into our place, laid down his life for our sins. He did this because God cannot merely forgive sin. We covered this last week. God cannot merely forgive sin because he's holy and he's just. And that means he's utterly separate from all sin and evil and he must treat sin as sin. He must treat it as the punishable offense that it is. Many years ago, there was a heartbreaking uh, case that was tried in a British court. It was a story about a soldier, a British soldier, who in a fit of rage shot and killed his wife and their infant child. This British soldier did not plead insanity. He did not try to get off the hook. He knew exactly what he had done wrong, and he was crushed by his sin, crushed by his guilt. The court ended up acquitting him because the judge said, this man has suffered enough. In his guilt, in his shame, he has suffered enough. So they set him free. A man murders his own wife, murders his infant child, and goes free? Now, where is the justice in that? Where is the fairness? Where is even the flavor of what is right? At the core of Christianity is the notion of justice. Justice. God insists that all sin, it must be treated as sin. It must be treated as the evil that it is. And that means it cannot be shrugged off. It cannot be winked at or swept under the rug. It must be punished. God's holiness demands retribution. And God in his love sends his own son Jesus to absorb the retribution for us in our place for our sins. Substitution is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the Christmas message. Now that brings us up to speed. We're halfway home. This is a four-part series. We've got our doctrinal basis in place now why we need forgiveness, and where to find it in Christ alone. Now we're going to get very practical this week and next. Today we're going to talk about resting in forgiveness, and next week, Christmas Eve, extending forgiveness to others. Probably the most challenging part of all this. See, everything that Jesus says is true, but not everything that Jesus says is easy. We'll feel that next Sunday especially. I encourage you to be here. But today, we want to talk about resting in forgiveness. What does it mean to rest in this forgiveness that we have? Through faith in the identity and ministry of Jesus, through faith, we receive forgiveness. Now we must come to rest in it, resting in that forgiveness that we have. One of my favorite parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a historic summary of Christian teaching, is a section I'm going to share with you here in just a moment from chapter 13. It talks about the war in which we're fighting. If you'll remember last week, you'll remember that I talked about one of the things Jesus does. He not only brings us forgiveness of sin, he also brings us inner transformation. He transforms us from the inside out. But inner transformation does not mean perfection. It doesn't mean perfection. See, we have a new power now. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And that means we are no longer under the power of sin. We've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. But sin remains present. It remains present within us. And that means that we are in a war. 
Here's the way the Westminster Confession puts it in chapter 13, section 2. I love the archaic Old English language here because it has a nice ring to it. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, every part of us, that is. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Believer, you and I are engaged in this continual and irreconcilable war. Before faith in Christ, we were prisoners of war. We were held captive by the power of sin. Now, through faith in Christ, we've been set free to fight in the war. We're no longer prisoners of war. Now we're fighting in it. We fight against sin. It's still present within us. We fight against it. And at times, sin wins the day. Happens to all of us. And when it does, when sin wins the day... It's very easy to do one of two things. We're tempted either to self-abasement and self-punishment, sort of a poor pitiful me, how could I have done such a thing? Or we're tempted to pride, to bounce back from the failure with a sense of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. We're tempted either to sink low in despair, how could I have done such a thing? I must be worthless, or we're tempted to rise high in pride. How could I have done such a thing? I'll make sure that from this day forward, I make myself more worthy than ever. But you see, neither one of these, neither one of them is resting in forgiveness, and they will both drain you. They'll drain you physically, they'll drain you emotionally, and they'll drain you spiritually. We must learn to rest in forgiveness, and that means returning again and again to the cross of Christ. Returning again and again to the cross. Another way to say it is we must live lives of confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Let's have a look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is one of the two great prayers of confession authored by David. This is the boy David who fought the giant Goliath, who grew into the great king of God's people, the great king who made grave mistakes. When David wrote Psalm 32, this was probably the time in his life when he had just fallen to a series of moral failures. It started when his eyes wandered toward a woman named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a married woman. But that didn't stop David because, after all, he was the king. He was a man of power. He could have whatever he wanted. So he summoned Bathsheba. He seduced her. And subsequently, he arranged for the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David was a man of moral failure, sexually immoral man. David was a murderer. And David was a man who found forgiveness, who received it, and who came to rest in it. In Psalm 32, he will show us how we too can rest in forgiveness, whatever the skeletons in your closet. This psalm has three distinct parts. In the first part, David gives us the key principle that he's going to develop throughout the entirety of the psalm, the key principle. In the second part, he gives us a personal testimony. And then at the very end, he's going to look us in the eye and he's going to call for response. 
response based on what we have learned about his life. So let's start with this key principle. At the very beginning, part one, verses one and two, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. At the very beginning of the psalm here, we have this word blessed. The key principle that he develops throughout, very simply, is this. Genuine confession brings joy. Genuine confession brings joy. He talks about this state of blessedness, this state of joy in which a certain type of person lives. It's interesting, Psalm 1 begins with the same word. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, blessed is the one who walks the path of godliness. Here in Psalm 32, the person who is blessed is not the one who has walked the path of godliness, but the one who has walked the path of wickedness and seen that, confessed it, repented of it, and now knows the joy of resting in forgiveness. David says there's hope. There's hope when you have veered from the path of godliness and you see your need for God's grace. You see your need for confession and repentance. Blessed is this type of person. We're also going to notice in this psalm several times throughout the piling up of synonyms to emphasize key points. We see here three words used for sin. Three words that sort of mark out the dimensions of human evil. David talks about transgression, sin, and iniquity. Very similar terms, a bit of overlap, but slightly different. Transgression refers to willful rebellion. It's used in military contexts of uh, someone who crosses a boundary. That's what a transgression is. Sin, quite literally, means missing the mark. In this case, missing the mark of God's standard. It's bad marksmanship. You aim at the target, you miss it. That's sin. And then he talks about iniquity. Iniquity is the swerving from the path of godliness. In addition to these three terms for sin, notice as well that we have three terms highlighting God's mercy. David is not just interested in emphasizing human sin, but God's mercy, God's grace. Our transgression is forgiven, our sin is covered, and then the Lord does not count our iniquity against us. Forgiven, some translations use the word lifted. It means that God removes. He removes the sin as far as the east is from the west. The second idea that it's covered means that God no longer looks at our sin. He no longer brings it up as a ground for his displeasure. And then finally, he doesn't count our sin. In other words, he has no record of it. This is what it means to be forgiven. Let me share a brief story with you that will bring this point to life. It's an apocryphal story, I'm sure, but helpful nonetheless. There once was a wealthy man, and he decided it was time to buy a new car. After prolonged consideration, he decided to buy a new Rolls Royce. So he goes and he buys his Rolls Royce, and having this wonderful new automobile, he decides to take it for a trip, drive through the country. Trip is off to a great start, beautiful weather, lovely scenery, but then all of a sudden, the car breaks down. Brand new Rolls Royce breaks down. Furious, the man calls the dealership. 
the person that answers the phone is very respectful, very kind, unwaveringly says, sir, we will handle this. We'll do so immediately. Not much time goes by. The man with the broken down Rolls Royce looks off into the distance and he sees a helicopter flying his way. The helicopter lands in a nearby field and out jumps a mechanic. The mechanic has the car up and running in no time. And so back he goes to his trip. Well, a few weeks go by and the man still has heard nothing from the Rolls Royce dealership. No bill, no documentation of this repair that was done to his car. So he calls the dealership again and he gets the receptionist. The receptionist says, sir, I, I don't know anything about this helicopter incident, but I'll find out for you. Someone higher up will be in touch very soon. A few days later, the man receives a letter in the mail. Simple, very clear. It said only this, dear sir, we have no record of anything ever going wrong with a Rolls Royce. And here endeth the story. Do you understand that when you are forgiven, it means that God has no record of anything ever going wrong with you? Brother, sister, that's what it means. No record of anything ever going wrong with you. You're forgiven. Rest in that Find joy in that. Now, before moving on to the second part of this psalm, I want you to notice here at the end of verse 2 something that David says. We have to deal with this. At the end of verse 2, he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What he means is that because confession of sin is the act of a sinner, our confession itself can be sinful. It can be deceitful. How is that? How can our confession be deceitful? It's deceitful when it's more like blame shifting. When it sounds more like this, God, I'm sorry for what happened, but really it wasn't my fault. If my company were more generous, then I wouldn't have misappropriated funds. God, I'm sorry for what happened, but it really wasn't my fault. If my spouse were more emotionally or physically available, I wouldn't have had the affair. That's blame shifting. That's deceitful confession. Our confession can be deceitful when it sounds more like excusing, when we paint vice with virtue's colors. Oh God, I'm not really a prideful person, I'm just assertive. God, I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. God, I don't really drink too much. I'm just the life of the party, you see? Moreover, our, deceit, our confession can be deceitful when it's merely words. In other words, when it's not accompanied by action, by repentance. See, true confession, genuine confession, means that we make a full and specific admission of what we have done wrong. And then we make a full renunciation of the sinful behavior. We change directions. Accountability structures are put in place. Bridges are burned. We confess the sin and we turn from it. We forsake it. That's genuine confession. And David wants us to see that only genuine confession will lead to the joyful state 
he talks about here. Now, how does David know this? How does he know about all of this, about confession and the joy it brings? Because he's experienced it himself. And that's what he teaches us about in the second part of this psalm. He now gives us a personal testimony. He thinks back on a time in his life when he sinned and he did not immediately confess. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David's testimony begins with spiritual depression. When he sinned with Bathsheba, Uriah, when he fell in these various ways, he did not immediately confess his sin. His first response was to try to cover up his evil, to hide his mistakes. And now looking back, thinking back on that season in his life, he sees the spiritual depression that he sunk into. Look at how he describes his life. He says, I was silent. Now, of course, he spoke many words during this time, but the words he needed to speak the most, the words of confession, he kept them bottled up inside. And the result was he felt like his bones were wasting away. Bones here is a figure of speech. He's not talking about literal bone destruction. He's talking about my life. My life was wasting away. My whole body, everything, it felt horrible during this time. Depression had set in. He talks about his groaning all day long. He cried out in anxiety, in agony. This is a miserable man. And finally, he says, my strength, it was dried up as by the heat of summer. We know in Florida, you don't have to be out in the summer sun for very long before the body just feels zapped, all the moisture gone. That's the condition David was in during this time of his life when he had fallen and tried to hide, tried to cover it up rather than confessing it. He's showing us that the intense spiritual weakening of the soul, it inevitably follows this practice of trying to hide our evil, hide our sin. But the good news comes in verse five. The good news is genuine confession brings joy. See for yourself. I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice again the piling up of the synonyms. The same three words that were used at the beginning of the psalm, emphasizing human evil, they're used here again, sin, iniquity, and transgressions. But now David attaches a different verb to each of them. Now we have this confessional trio. I acknowledged my sin to you, God. To acknowledge sin to God doesn't mean that we tell God something he doesn't already know. We're not informing God of our sins. He's well aware of them. He's well aware of them. We're agreeing with him. This is a good way to think about confession of sin. You're agreeing with God that you are sinful. You're agreeing with God that you are desperately in need of his grace. David acknowledged his sin. Then he did not cover his iniquity. Do you see the beauty of this? When we do not cover our sin, when we run to God freely with nothing to hide, God will cover the sin for us. He will cover it no longer bringing it up as a ground for his displeasure, forgiveness, forgiveness. And then finally, I will confess my transgressions 
to the Lord, he says. David made a full and specific admission of what he had done wrong. And the result is God hears him and God forgives him. The indivisible unity, the indivisible unity of Psalm 32 is this. The sinner genuinely confesses and God graciously forgives. That's David's story. Now he wants it to be your story and mine. So in the final part of the psalm, he turns, he looks us in the eye, and he calls us to respond. And at the very end, he gives us three specific points of application. Application number one, confess with swiftness. Confess with swiftness. Look at verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. The better translation of the Hebrew here is at a time of finding. And the time of finding is when we are seeking, when we are convicted of our sin. When you are convicted, you should confess your sin to God immediately. Don't hesitate because hesitation leads to spiritual depression. That state that David described earlier, that dryness, that drought of the soul. See, if in this preaching moment, if right now you are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if right now God is giving you the gift of sight, sight of your sin, then you know what to do. Confess that sin to God and you will find the joy of forgiveness. But you say, what if I've done too much? What if my sins are too many? What if my sins are too dirty? What if God has turned away from me, rejected me? What if he's angry with me? David anticipates this objection. So he gives us a second point of application. Application number two, avoid stubbornness and trust in God's faithfulness. Avoid stubbornness and trust in God's faithfulness. Verses 9 and 10, be not like a horse or a mule without which must be curbed uh, without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the lord david says to us don't be like a mule plug in a different word if you want don't be like a mule don't be prideful and stubborn run to god freely willingly confess your sin understanding that your confession of sin to God ultimately is a demonstration of faith in God you see what he says here at the end of verse 10 steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord when we confess our sin to God we are demonstrating our faith our trust in him we're demonstrating that we believe that God is faithful that he will not ever turn his back on us no matter what we have done. This phrase, steadfast love, it refers to God's loyal love, his covenant love. That word covenant is used in the Bible a lot. But do you understand what the word covenant means? Simply put, it means that God has busted into your life. He has busted in and formed a forever relationship with you. Nothing can change that. So it is safe for you to return to God. It is safe for you to confess your sin, whatever that sin is. God is faithful. He is there. 
He still loves you. He is ready. He is ready. Run to him freely. And finally, application number three. David tells us to celebrate our forgiveness. Celebrate it. Look at how he ends the psalm in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When you are forgiven, when you've received it and when you're resting in it, then you know to rejoice. We sometimes forget how great it is to be forgiven. And I think the reason for that is because we don't truly see the seriousness of our sin. When you see the tidal wave of God's wrath that is about to come crashing down on you as a sinner, when you see that tidal wave of wrath, then you know to kiss the feet of the rescue pilot who swoops in to save you. You know to rejoice in this state of being forgiven. You know you've been spared. You've received grace. See, throughout this whole psalm, Psalm 32, David is showing us how not just to receive forgiveness, but to rest in it, to return again and again to the cross, to confess our sin, to repent of it, not wallowing in self-pity, not rushing at life with self-confidence. No, returning again and again to the cross of Christ. Because there at the cross, friends, there at the cross, under the cross, looking up at Jesus, there I see my guilt. Jesus died for me. And when I see my guilt, I know there is no place for pride. There is no place for self-confidence. But there at the cross, looking up at Jesus, I see my forgiveness. Jesus died for me. And when I see my forgiveness, I know that God loves me. He's with me. He has a plan for me. And so there's no reason for despair. The cross and only the cross is the answer for both our pride and our despair. So rest in the cross. Rest in our forgiveness. Let's do that right now as we prepare for communion. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you today humble, not prideful. We come to you today acknowledging that we are so desperately in need of your grace. Father, we have sinned in so many ways. Help us in these next few moments to search our hearts, search our lives, show us our sin. Show us the attitudes, the actions that we need to confess to you now. That by the power of your Spirit, we need to turn away from.
Lord, there is not a perfect person among us. The only perfect one, that's Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your son, for the life he lived in our place, for the death he died in our place, for his glorious resurrection, the hope that brings to us, the new life it brings to us here and now. We desire to live as your people. Not perfect, but faithful. So guide us with your word, empower us with your spirit. And Lord, as we come to your table now, remembering all that Jesus has accomplished for us, we ask you to give us the spiritual strength we need to live each and every day for you. We thank you for the cross, the forgiveness of sin that it brings. May we receive it. Having received it, may we rest in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.